Okay, well, you got the sitting down part figured out, so we're good there. Everybody needs to sit down. Good deal. You guys, uh, you guys a little feisty today? I'm, getting, I'm just getting just this vibe, like you guys are ready. You ready to rumble? You ready? To, oh, I'm sorry, I did that too. I grew up in Tennessee. Wrestling is our state sport. That was back before wrestling was real. Anyway, a long time ago. So uh, God created the Garden of Eden, okay? And he bordered it with four rivers. So the Garden of Eden had boundaries that were established by God. And God said, Adam, I want you to steward the garden. And I want you to take care of it. And it's your responsibility. I want you to grow inside my lines. Well, Adam blew it. Adam wanted more than the garden in some sense. Somehow he wanted to be God to himself. And so he uh, blew it and lost the garden. He broke outside of his lines and ended up trapped in a world of corruption and brokenness. So time passed. A lot of things happened. We're, gonna talk, we're about to start a series next week. We're going to cover some key Bible stories, the flood, different things happened. But um, one day God shows up to a guy named Abram, and God starts a journey toward the cross in Abraham. And he promises Abraham a new land. And the new land is what would, they would later come to call the Canaan land. And that land also had boundaries. It also had lines. And if you read Numbers chapter 34, you would read a very descriptive um, uh, explanation of what those boundaries were and how they were marked out. So God has a way of establishing a boundary for you and I to live within. In fact, he has a way of establishing a promised land, an Eden, so to speak, for us to steward and take care of. Does that make sense? So I want to begin by simply making this point. God has secured your promised land. God has secured your promised land. Okay? The problem is a lot of times we get this idea that if God wants us to have it, he'll just galley up and just hand it to us. Just like, hey, I, you know, and, and if he'll work at some kind of miracle, overcome all of our mistakes and our stupidity, and just hand us our dreams. But that's not how God works. Abraham had to move. Moses had to go to Egypt. Joseph had to be humiliated, thrown in prison, and before he lived into his dreams. The disciples had to go before there was any power expressed through them. Peter had to step out of a boat before he could walk on the water. Paul had to say to the lame man, get up and walk, before there was any indication that anything different was going to happen. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? God doesn't just drop it in your lap. God invites you into a journey, into a process with God. This is how God actually works. This is how the kingdom works. <clears throat> Not how my slides work, but anyway. Hannah, same, same song, different verse. Um, sorry, when I lose my way, I lose my way, and there's nothing I can do about it. I usually just preach longer. So yeah, you should be nervous. The Bible says in Philippians 2.12, thank you, work hard to show the results of your salvation, Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power 
to do what pleases him. There's a scriptural basis for that co-laboring with God, okay? So, God showed up, and he uh, showed up for Moses, set the nation of Israel free. You remember that story, or maybe you don't. God showed up and released Israel from Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness. God did not intend for them to spend 40 years walking around out there dying. He meant for them, he meant the wilderness just to be a pathway from technically one baptism to another, but that's another sermon for another time, but from out of bondage and into the promise. That, that was the plan, but the people didn't go with the plan. But they had some things they had to learn in the wilderness. They had to learn about the tragedy, terror, and condemnation of a thing called sin. They, they had to learn how to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances in the wilderness. They had to learn um, to fight in the wilderness. And the funny thing is, the whole time, well, it's not funny, it's really sad. The whole time they're in the wilderness, which amounted to 40 years, the promised land was theirs. It was their land. The promise had been made 400 years previous. God had sent them there 40 years before. And the whole time in the wilderness, it was their promised land that they could not enter. What an idea. So what about your promised land? What kind of promises has God made to you? Do you know? Because the Bible says this in Peter. He's given us great and precious promises. Us. He's given you, me, great and precious promises. And these are the promises that enable you. They enable you to share His divine nature, to escape the world's corruption caused by human desires, in view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. That verse is for you. We also have promises that God has for us. We have a promised land. Jesus purchased some things for us. I mean, the death of Jesus on the cross, that's the highest price that's ever been paid for anything. It was a price that was paid for you. And it wasn't just paid so you could survive until you die. Jesus Christ didn't die on a cross so you could survive until you die. I'd say, man, if I was sitting there, I'd have gone, hey, man. That's what I'd have said. Now, sometimes I say it quiet, and sometimes I say it loud. Jesus purchased a saved life for you. A saved life. I like that idea. He purchased a peaceful life. He purchased a satisfied life. Everybody's pursuing satisfaction, but nobody can get any. Because they're not in the life that Jesus has for them. He purchased an abundant life for you. Amen. That's good, right? So, David said this in Psalm 16. I love this verse. I said God gave you these boundaries around your responsibility. Just like Eden, just like the promised land. Remember that. Try and think on that. There's a lot there to chew on. But David said this in Psalm 16. Lord... Uh, you are my portion, my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Amen. Does that sound like a verse you could own right there? So when you start thinking about drawing lines in your life, we're not talking about making life miserable. Uh, I'm not saying it won't be challenging at first, especially at first. But we're just talking about realizing your Eden. Realizing and understanding and begin to live in and take responsibility for stewarding your promised land. By the way, there are a lot of people out there that would tell you, you just need to dream up your future and go after it. I am not one of those. 
We, uh, we're Christians. Christians. We do what Christ wants. If you have a promised land, and it's not the one Christ gave to you, it is not the promised land. It's actually the wilderness. That's what Israel took 40 years to learn. Okay? So try and hang on to that. Don't, don't get lost in all the, the hubbub bub that's out there. So, if you're going to have your promised land, though, this is the point of today. You're going to have to fight for it. We talk about boundaries. You talk about bowing up. You know what that means? Yeah, you know what that means. Cowboying up, same thing. Bowing up and doing what needs to be done. And we're talking about fighting for something that you need in your life, fighting for your promised land. Yes, God secured the promised land for the nation of Israel, but he, they, had to fight into, they had to fight for that promised land. They couldn't just, they, they, in a sense, they did kind of mosey into the land and God fought their battles, but they still had to take some lives. They still had to march around some cities. They still had to make some good decisions, and they didn't always do it right either. <coughs> Excuse me. But the Bible says in Deuteronomy, God told them, He said, don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally, the Lord will personally. How many of you guys, in your heart, you don't, don't, don't indicate here, this is not a trap question, but... but how many of you guys in your heart, you really think God's just kind of out there? And he's like, he's, he's just like this benign thing way out there. Well, that's not who God is. God always presents himself as a personal, an up-close and personal God. Always. That's who God is. Jesus came to show us who God really was, and Jesus was an up-close and personal kind of God. He was a savior, always in our life. And so God says, you know, don't be afraid or discouraged. So that's a word for you right now. Some of you are struggling with where you are in life and how you're going to handle your future and what needs to be going on in your marriage, your family, your job, on and on and on. And that's, so this series is of interest to you. It's actually, you have an investment in it already. And so I just want to say to you, don't be afraid or discouraged. The Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you and he will neither fail you nor abandon you. That's Deuteronomy 31.8. You should write it down. Read it later. Maybe make it the verse of the week. As you're trying to deal with the challenges that you face in life and some of the fights that we're going to talk about today. And I know you're excited about that. Don't, don't get lured by apathy. Apathy is so attractive. I mean, it really is. What's, what's better than doing nothing today? I mean, apathy seems so sweet in the moment. Ignorance is bliss, and I believe that's it. That should be in the Bill of Rights, because that's what Americans believe more than anything. Just ignorance is bliss. It's, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to think about the things that are hard, whatever. And, and so why, why step into responsibility for your life? Why deal with the controlling person, the angry person, the, the guilt messages? Why stand up to all of that stuff? Why stir it up? Why take that kind of responsibility for you? Because the Bible says in Luke 9.25, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Every man, woman, child in this church, in this community, on this planet is a God original. Do you understand that? You're a God original. You're not a cheap copy. We live in a world that all it does is copy. You read the book of Revelation, you find out that Satan is a counterfeiter. That's all he ever does is counterfeit God's cool. He tries to be cool, but he stinks at it, okay? And he counterfeits. 
And that's what goes on in our world. Hey, look, I made a big chunk of money, and if you copy me, you'll make a big chunk of money, and then you can sell a lot of books. And that works, right? <laughs> Sells a lot of books. The guy who figures out a system to copy, that guy makes money, but nobody else does. And so you need to understand, you're not a copy. We're not looking for the next book. Oh, you need to hear me right now. We're not looking for the next book to tell us what following Jesus looks like or what discipleship looks like or what it looks like to walk in power. You got the original. It's called the Bible, dude. Pop that sucker open and read, man. You will find out God loves you. You'll find out an original path to God has created you to be. It's a shame I live in a world that can't handle an original. But that's their yard. They need to get over it, right? You're God's original. Let's say original. Hang on. I'm going to say your God's, and you're going to say original. Your God's original. Ooh. You look good, too. I like the way he made you. You look smart, especially you, Leonard. I was hard on Leonard earlier, and I'm trying to make up for it. So there's this story in Matthew 20. It's a mind blower. Jesus tells the story of a landowner. And he's got some fields he needs taken care of. So he goes out probably about 6 in the morning and hires a guy. He's going to pay the guys a day's wage to work all day because that's how it was done back then. So he goes out. Then he goes back out at 9, finds some other guys milling about, says, hey, I got a job for you. I'll pay you. You go out in my fields work, I'll pay you. So they go out, 9 o'clock. Noon, more guys. Three o'clock, more guys. Five o'clock, more guys. Sends them all out all day. So throughout the day, some guys work 12-hour days. Some guys work a 10. Some work eight. Some work six. Some work two. End of the day, the landover says, you know what? I'm feeling super generous today. I'm just going to pay them all a day's wage. But the thing was, he started at the end of the line. The two guys that started late, he paid them a full day's wage. And then the next guy's a full day's wage. Finally, he got to the guys who actually worked a full day. And gave them exactly what he said he was going to give them. And guess what? They were Baptists. (laughs) I grew up Baptist. I can poke fun at them. They were not happy. Um, And and you'll find that it's not easy to make a Christian happy in general. But anyway, it's Matthew 20, 15. (laughs) But you're an original. You're an original. All right. So you don't get mad like that, right? Hint, 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 hint. Okay. Matthew 20, 15, Jesus puts these words in the landowner's mouth. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, Jesus is portraying generosity in the story. But the generosity is mistaken as a cruelty, as an injustice. That happens all the time, and that's why lines are so important in our lives. Because only you can decide what to do with your love and your limits. We can't, you know, we we, we love the idea of love. Even, you know, masculine and feminine, however you translate the word of love in your psyche. We we love uh, the Bible definition. It talks about not getting irritable and being patient and all that kind of stuff. We love 1 Corinthians 13. That's good. We love how love works in our life. Even if it's like brotherly love and masculine love, that band of brothers feel. I got some people in my life that care about me. Or, or, or if it's a feminine type love that's more romantic in nature and more surprising and more mysterious, especially to the masculine in nature. <laughs> 
So love is cool. We, we want to love. We need to be loved. We need to love. What we struggle with is our limits. Do you realize Jesus had limits? He could only be at one place at one time. So how did he resolve that? How many of you, don't, you, you, can, you can nod your head, how many of you really needed to be three places last Thursday? All the moms in the room, I needed, I just needed Jesus. I know what you're thinking. And coffee and six million dollars. Um, Jesus, so what, his, his way he resolved it was, he says, wherever I see the Father working, that's where I work. He didn't work everywhere. He didn't go everywhere. The Father set his agenda. By the way, this is a, that's a key principle in the Christian life, guys. But it's not my subject for the day. <laughs> Jesus had no money. Do you think God answered Jesus' prayers? Six people. Let's try that again. Do you think the Father answered the Son? But before I, let me before I ask this again. This is the same Father who said to the Son, coming up out of the baptismal pool, this is my beloved Son, I am nuts about Him. That's the Michael Maynard translation, all right? Do you think the Father answered his prayers? Yes. Jesus died with no house, no, no backpack, no money, no car. Oh, he lasted a few years ago. Well, it did say that the disciples and him were in one accord, so that's a Honda. <laughs> that was for you, Michael. That was for you. Preacher joke extraordinaire. <laughs> so lame, so lame. See, that's one of the perks of my job. I get to be lame, and people are like, oh, what do you expect? You know. <laughs> he didn't have any money. I mean, he died. So, but Jesus prayed. Theologians kind of agree that Jesus prayed probably about four hours a day. Apparently, he never asked for houses and cars and possessions and money. Jesus didn't have money, but he gave people lessons, sermons, compassion. He, he would sit down and enjoy, he'd give them his time and his company. He would heal them, even raise some of them from the dead. He didn't have money, but he, he did have something to give, and that's what he gave. Energy. Jesus had limited energy. Jesus took naps. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I love Jesus, naps. I'm telling you, man, I, the day he's taking a nap and the storm is throwing the boat around, I'm like, that is, Jesus was nap-level expert, you know? Oh, my goodness. He had to rest. And then he spent a lot of time with his father. And that was, that was, and no probably about it, that was the key to his power, was the time he spent with his father. Because he came out of that time with his father with power. In fact, one of those moments was the Mount of Transfiguration. And I, God's really kind of wrestling with me on that particular passage right now. I feel like there's something there about what Christian living is supposed to be. I think we're supposed to live from that mountain, but I'm still working on that. Maybe it'll be a sermon one day, because everything is. He comes down off that mountain, and there is a boy with epilepsy at the bottom of the hill. That the, He has epilepsy because he's being afflicted by the enemy. And the disciples who are on the ground are trying to deal with the boy, and they can't. And Jesus says to him, this kind does not come out except through prayer. Something about Jesus' time with Father empowered Jesus to deal with everything else. That's why Satan will do everything he can to keep you out of your prayer closet. He knows when you hit your knees, he's wrecked. 
Do you ever realize you're really a son or a daughter? He, he loses all power over you. You ever get a hold of that? He's done. That's why he's trying to fight it so hard in our life. You're the one, though, who has control of the love and limits in your life. And so 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul said, Each of you should give what you have decided to give, decided in your heart to give, and not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's how God wants you to give. That's what love does. Love gives without regret and so forth. So, uh, we, we are responsible as love and limits, so back into the fight concept of it. You've got to fight for your promised land, and we're going to talk about two things you're going to fight today. One is angry people, and two is guilt messages. Angry people and guilt messages. And be honest with you, uh, guilt messages can come from angry people. But one of the big reasons a lot of us struggle with boundaries in our life is because of anger. We don't want to make people angry. And so we shy away from those kind of messages. Sometimes for some of you, anger terrifies you. You don't want to make anyone angry. Why? Uh, you, know, you should ask yourself that question. You should really go to Jesus with it. Why does anger terrify you if that's where you are? Because it's probably that you have an example of authority in your life, a parent, a boss when you were younger, something that used anger to control people. That's what anger is. It's a, it's a big tool of manipulation. And so if you got that in your formative years or early enough in life, then you can telescope that on every authoritative relationship in your life and be afraid of, of anger or any relationship at all, actually. So we've got to deal with this issue of anger. How do we uh, get out of it? How do we deal with people in those situations? Well, as you think about it, let me start with a couple ideas. First this. The anger in other people is not your problem. Do you believe that? Some of you do. Some of you want to. And some of you, when someone's angry at you, the feelings you're having are like this. Oops, I'm in trouble. I did something wrong. Now I need to take care of this. I need to back off of my no. Um, I need to bring peace here or I need to get angry myself. Those are the kind of ideas that if you struggle with other people's anger, which is their responsibility and their yard, those are the kind of feelings that you might have in your heart. But the Bible has a lot to say about anger and it's generally not good. If someone expresses anger, that's generally a problem of immaturity. If I, if I just slapped you, good. Because we all have to grow up, and we're giving each other chances to grow. But we have to understand, when someone gets angry with us, and we, we establish a line or a boundary in our life, no, I can't do this, or I'm not available, or no, I won't, or I'm choosing to do something else, whatever, and someone gets angry with us, we need to realize that that's something that they have to deal with. And remember that Paul says anger is a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. It says anger is something we need to get rid of in uh, Colossians chapter 3. And that anger is something um, that's something else in Ephesians chapter 4. That I can't remember what he said about anger. Oh, he says we need to not let it control us. I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 4. I knew I had that in my brain somewhere, but it's really hard to get stuff out of here. 
So the, the real issue when you're dealing with someone who's dealing with anger, when you have anger messes in your life and you're trying to get these things understanding, you start fighting your giants, so to speak. And one of those giants is people who get angry at you. You've got to realize that anger is on them. That's their problem. Anger is not your cue to do anything. Someone else's anger is not your cue to do anything. You ever heard the story of Elijah and King Ahaziah? Ahaziah? Ahaz? King A. Let's call him King A because I can't remember how to say Ahaziah. Ahaz, never mind, forget it. <laughs> the Bible, it's so complicated. Anyway, so what happens was uh, the king, King A, uh, he, he sends a prophet to, the, to Baal to get an answer because he's sick. And Elijah intercepts the message, sends word back, said, dude, you're going to die. I mean, Elijah had a lot of people skills. <laughs> and, and he needed his back shaved, but that's another thing. So 2 Kings chapter 1 tells the story. The king asked for him, and then the king, after Elijah tells him, hey man, you're going to die, then the king's like, he wants to know more. Obviously, he wants to do that. So he sends 50 troops on horseback to Elijah's crib, a house. Sorry, I'm getting a little too young here. Anyway, so, <laughs> so they send him to his house, and then, so Elijah's sitting out there in his deck chair. He's got, got Adirondack chairs out there, I'm pretty sure, and uh, he's chilling out, drinking a Starbucks. And uh, these horses come up in the morning, and the, the head the head. The guy in charge of the 50 horse, guys on horses comes down and says, Hey, you're coming with us to see the king. And Elijah says, Hey, if I'm a man of God, uh, burn, baby, burn. And fire falls from heaven. And now there are 50 piles of ashes of people and horses, which is pretty cool. But a heck of a stench in the morning. It's, it's even, even worse than the smell of Starbucks. But anyway, so... So Elijah just keeps chilling out because he's dealing with an angry king. So the second 50 horsemen come, and they pretty much, we do it again. We do this twice. There's always got to rerun. rerun uh, there's always got to be a rerun. So the second group of 50 comes up. They've got horses. They're bad to the bone. Elijah, you've got to come with us. Elijah says, burn, baby, burn. Poof. Now we've got 100 piles of ashes and everything. Finally, the third group comes, 50 soldiers, they come, and the soldier gets there, the commander climbs off the horse, gets on his knees, and says, Elijah, please don't kill me, <sighs> which is a pretty effective approach, apparently, because Elijah said, okay, let's go. <laughs> let's do that. What happened here? Elijah didn't let the anger of a king impact his choices or decision. Now, obviously, you, can't, you may not be able to call down fire from heaven. We're kind of in a New Testament, so that might be a little different. But obviously there was a rage burning from a king through an army to Elijah. And Elijah just waited. You could do the same thing. You don't have to do anything just because someone else is angry. The Bible says in Proverbs 19, 19, it says, Hot-tempered people must pay the penalty. If you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. So you think of that. The next time you're dealing with an angry person and, and you've established a line, they're trying to push you across it with, your ang with their anger, then you need to remember, if I fold, if I give up my no right here, I'm just going to do it again. It's going to happen again. You're just delaying the conflict with the bully. You have to stand up to a bully, guys. You'll never, sorry, I don't mean for this to be political. This is just what I learned at nine years old in elementary school. You have to stand up to the bully. You may get beat up by the bully, but sooner or later he gets tired of punching the kid who stands up to him and he moves on to someone else. You have to stand up to the bully. It's the same way with angry people. It's just bullying. It's a different tactic. And so remember, angry people need a chance to grow. They're dealing with their own immaturity. 
They're dealing with their own immaturity. I wouldn't tell them that to their face probably, but I'm just saying that's what's going on. You know, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. God put you here to be righteous. That's your calling. That's your promised land is righteousness. So keep that in mind. How do you overcome those angry people? Uh, Three things. Friends, consequences, and empathy. Friends. Listen, one of the things we need to do worse than anything in Wyoming is get off of our high horse of cowboy up. I can do this all by myself. I'm the Lone Ranger. And realize we've got to have friends. We've got to have a family of faith who can change the voices in our head. A lot of the reasons you can't overcome those angry people in your life and why you're dealing with so much anxiety over those angry voices is because you have an angry person in your head. How do you overcome the angry person in your head? You get around some people who love you, care about you, and who are honest with you. Honesty is better than anger. By the way, if I can't be honest without being angry, I'm a coward. That's a sideline. I'm just going to throw that out there, okay? So that's how we've got to get some friends in our life to speak truth into us and help us. Okay, we've got to change those voices in our head. Second, consequences. Consequences are incredibly powerful things. Consequences can work a few ways, but two of them are... One, we don't interfere with consequences. Everyone pays for their own stupid, right? That's how it should be. Everyone pays for their own stupid. Why? Pain is an incredible teacher. Pain is far more effective than nagging. That's what we do as parents, though, isn't it? We nag, but we absorb the pain. And we teach our kids how not to be mature by doing that. So if we get out of the way and say, okay, you made, the con- you, you made the mistake, you absorbed the consequences. Shazam, by the way, they're making the movie Shazam. Did you see that? It's going to be hilarious. All right, never mind. <laughs> Shazam has a lot of context. <clears throat> All right, so friends, consequences. Consequences are also, a lot of times people get into boundaries because they're trying to control people. They're trying to stop the angry person. Someone, maybe they're in a verbally abusive relationship, even at home, and someone's yelling at them or whatever, and they think boundaries are saying things like, you can't talk to me that way. That is not a boundary. That's trying to control people. The only thing you can control in life is you. So a consequence is, you continue yelling at me, I'm going to be somewhere else while you're doing that. I'll come back when we can talk like human beings, okay? Now, granted, in a violent, well, not a violent situation, but in a stressful situation, that can be difficult to do, but you'll find out you'll make a lot more progress actually discussing what's wrong if you can take the pressure off of those heated moments, all right? So keep that in mind, all right? Friends, consequences, that's kind of how they work. And then empathy. Empathy is really powerful. What's empathy? Empathy is when, I don't know, say, say I, I, I drew a line with Carrie and Carrie got angry with me. And he, he, he started, you know, yelling, whatever. You, know, you don't know Carrie like I do. I mean, he's, he's a violent man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Violent for Jesus. He's my kind. Of, anyway, so. <clears throat> so, you know, you, a lot of times that's our cue. A lot of us, especially for people pleaser, a lot of us, that's our cue to change our no. But what we need to be doing is like trying to understand. Because that's what we're here to do as Christians. We're here to, to understand and love this world. It's amazing what Jesus, the time Jesus took just to understand what he was dealing with. And so uh, empathy is just saying, hey, Carrie, I see you're upset. What's going on? Sometimes people just need to talk, man. 
You'll be surprised. Once, once you see this from the other side, you're gonna, you'll be surprised one day to discover how little of the stress that you're getting from other people is actually about you. Usually it's about what they're dealing with. Empathy just says, hey, I want to understand. It doesn't mean I change my no. It just means I help me, man. Let me, let me help you. Because I'm, res- I'm responsible for me and to you. If Carrie's angry, and I know Carrie, if Carrie were angry, there'd be something going on with him. And it's my responsibility to him is to say, okay, talk to me, man. Even if you've got to yell for a bit, but talk to me. What's going on? Make sense? That's some ways to deal with angry people. I, you could have some situations that are way more than what I'm able to cover today. I get that. And I'm willing to help. And uh, you work through some solutions, some ways to do it. But the main thing, you're going to find answers. If you find good relationship with God to help you grow in the lines he's given you and friends who want to see you grow, which moves us on to our next concept. Angry people are a problem for a lot of us, but even more of us deal with guilt messages. Give me a nod if you've got someone who likes to lay the guilt on you. Okay, they're all a little shy. They're sitting next to the person doing it. <laughs> just kidding. I always like to drag the awkward out and look at it. You know, it's just... It's a sin. I don't know if it's a sin, but it's something I like to do. Uh, there's correction and guilt, and those are different things. Correction and guilt are different things, okay? One is for your growth, and you need it. The Bible says in Proverbs 12, 1, it says, To learn, you must love discipline. It, it's stupid to hate correction. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 says, An open rebuke is better than hidden love. Uh, words from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. So we need correction in our lives. We need to learn to love it. How I approach it is this way. Now, now I'm not saying I'm in the love correction zone because then I'll have 30 people offering me correction at the end of service. Um, one, I mean, you know, any situation that comes in your life, you really, I encourage you to always say, Father, what you got for me here? What's the lesson you have? doesn't matter how mean the people are, if the situation is unfair, if the betrayal is brutal. That's not the, that should not be the first concern. The first concern is this. I know God is good. I know He's going to work everything out for good. So, Father, what's the good you have for me here? Okay? That's the first thing I want to get. Okay? Out of anything that happens, whether it's a correction or a guilt message, and then, then move on. But a correction message is for my growth. If I have someone coming to my life, corrections usually come out of relationship. I've got a lot of corrections from not relationship uh, that have been off, that have not, they, they haven't really known what, where I'm at, what, what's going on with me and where my heart is. Corrections should come out of relationship. Uh, but they're for my growth. I mean, I want my friends to get closer to Jesus. I, I want friends in my life who want me to look and act and behave more like Jesus. Now, granted, my friends are a little bit more crass than other people's friends because we country. But nonetheless, that's where we roll. That's how we do things. So there's correction. But then there's the guilt message. Ah, the guilt message. Um, there are people in our life that are angry. They're just Guilt messages come from angry people. And uh, there may be a reason for it. There may be good people struggling with their own responsibility. And so when the guilt messages come, that is not a reason to move your line or change your no. 
Remember this verse. It's really powerful. It's in Matthew 5, 37 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. What a passage. So, um, whenever I hear people say things like, I promise, or I swear, or I'll, I'll really, when I hear those kinds of statements, it always makes me ask the question, am I dealing with a person of integrity? Is this an honest person? Because if I have to add an I promise onto something I said, that means I don't trust me to do what I said. I'm trying to give a little extra weight to what I said. And so I always question that. But I've been in a position in life where I've had a lot of people make promises to me, and it always creates a bit of doubt in me. Now, I'm not trying to make you cynical. Just tell you how it is. <laughs> Galatians 5.1 says, Christ has set you free. Now make sure that you stay free. And don't get tied up again uh, in the slavery to the law. So we need to stay free. So guilt messages are just... Um, they're not a reason for us to change our limits. They're manipulators. They're people who are dealing with their own stress and distress. And so we need to keep those things in mind. Guilt is a mask for that hurt and anger and sadness in our life. If guilt works on you, if guilt works on you, you got a problem. I've heard, I've said, well, they guilted me into it. And I laid the blame on the guilt giver. Well, I'm the one who's got to stand before Jesus. I'm the one whose life has to be a sacrifice to the Father, Romans 12.1. Nobody's responsible for my choices except me, right? And so if I allow people to use guilt to get me past my no and to get inside my boundaries, I'm the one who has to, I've got work to do. I'll tell you another one that's in my life, and I hope this doesn't sting you, but it's one I, I realized I was struggling with. I always had, and I'm dealing with it now, an incredible need to explain why if I ever said no. Anybody else like that? Just like, you know, that is another indicator that we are just susceptible to those guilt messages, you know? And so, it, you really, uh, most people don't even actually care why you said no. They're just mad because you said no, <laughs> right? <laughs> So it's not that big a deal. So it's okay to just say, hey, no, or I've got something else going on or something I need to do. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. This, and this really is an issue of self-control. When we talk about living godly lines and living where God wants us to be, that's a fruit of the Spirit, self-control is, and that's what we're talking about having in our lives. So when people use guilt messages to move us past our no, we just need to see them for what they are, take time to think about them for what they are, I was, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, I can't even remember who, and we were talking about this issue, people trying to get a, you know, that quick yes out of you. Manipulators never give you time. I may have said this in another message, but when people are trying to manipulate you, they want an answer right now. Just go to a car lot. Uh, they may have changed, but they're not all this way, but there's several I've been to over the years that, you know, they're just trying to push you into your, their their yes for you, you know, and it's, and you feel bad, but you know, they, they know how to do it and they're trained how to do it. And then buyer's remorse and all that kind of stuff kicks in. What we need to realize is if I don't have time, uh, then I need to protect. Now, that'd be a good plan. I'll tell you some things, some protective lines that work for us. 
One is, uh, I need to pray about it. That's a good one. No one knows what to do with that one. I had a, I've done that on several car dealers. I really need to pray about that. And he said, well, why don't you do it right now? And I'm like, well, here, let's you and me pray about it. He, you go ahead and pray about that, sir. You go ahead. Another one is, I need to talk to my wife about it, and vice versa. I need to talk to my husband about it. This is especially helpful on calendar things. Um, you, it's so easy to let your life just get totally filled to the hilt if you don't stay in communication with each other. Say what? Oh, I thought you were talking to me. Don't talk to Peyton. Talk to me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> they don't have a wife yet. Not yet. God's got one for you. He's saving her for you, and she is planning your life right now. <laughs> So, um, just kidding. So the point is, when, when I get pressed like that, when, I have, when I'm dealing with a guilt message, stop reacting. Stop reacting. That's a key thing. Be proactive. Decide what God wants you to do. Know what's best for you. And, um, and, and, and then back to that empathy thing. I mean, how many times could you just say, it sounds like you're dealing with some stress here. What's going on? How can, how can I be praying for you? You know, let me give you something that's, that may sound a little weird, but man, it saved my uh, bacon so many times. Uh, it's prayer. I've been in domestic disputes that were out of control. I mean, we're talking blows about to fly, cops about to come in the door. And, and I've said, let's pray. Or I've just started praying, and God would just settle it. So, never discount prayer. And if you're afraid to pray because people are going to judge you for it, that's your yard. So what? They did not die on a cross for me. They're not taking me to heaven when, they, when I die. And they're not with me in my worst moments either. Only Jesus is. So keep those things in mind, all right? So those are battles we have to fight. So I want to conclude with just this one last thought. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to consider the cost. Seven messages now I have dealt with the issue of boundaries. I've called them lines. Places we need to establish in our life that we're responsible for so that we can understand also who and what we're responsible to. I've told you over and over again, this is not a one-minute fix. This is not a quick counseling session and done. This is not a magic bullet. This is a process of life, and it takes time. What we have to understand is this. Jesus told us many times, count the cost. Count the cost. because He would say himself, I'm not asking you for a decision. I'm asking you for your entire life. Okay? And so keep that in mind. So you should count the cost. Why? Why confront the angry spouse? Why deal with the guilt messaging parent? Why, why deal with the spoiled child? Why do it? Because you know there are going to be consequences. You know there's going to be anger. You know there's going to be isolation. You know you're going to get punished. You know these kinds of things are going to happen. And that's why most of us don't ever do anything. Because we're like, the cost is too high. And so I don't want to enter into that. Well, I want to remind you what... Jesus said in Luke 9, he says, what good is it if, for someone to gain the whole world man, and yet lose or forfeit 
their very self. Who are you going to be? Are you going to be God's original or somebody else's cheap copy? And that should stick in you, and it should get you just a, get your dander up a bit, get you a little flustered. And that's what it's meant to do, to help us realize I cannot live the life someone else tells me to do. My responsibility in this life is to turn it over to Jesus. Amen. Oh, I wanted to read Romans 12.1. Can you get Romans 12.1 up? There it is. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. That's what we're here to do. I'm responsible to give this life to God. So you want to think about the cost for a second? Yeah. You might have to get a new job. You might spend some time on the couch or the proverbial doghouse. You might have some difficulty in your marriage. What I have generally found, this is not an absolute, that if you will wisely draw a line in your life that needs to be there and do what you're responsible for, the relationship will improve. You will give people opportunity to grow, and many of them will. But not all. You may have to find some new friends. Again, you might have to find a new job. It, is it worth it? Because Jesus says, I, I want all of you. Why, Jesus? Why, why all? Isn't just coming to church some on Sundays, isn't that enough? No, Jesus says, I'm making you into my Father's original. We can't just have parts of you to work with. That's not an original. That's unfinished. I died to finish you. Complete you. I need an entire sacrifice. That's what boundaries are about. Boundaries are about you and I offering the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for on the cross, the full of it. That's what we are responsible for. So as you think about the things that need to happen in your life, marriage, job, parenting, friendships, recreations, don't forget this. I'm not on this earth for me. You understand that? I'm not here for me. This life isn't get all you can, can all you get, and poison the rest and get out of here. This life is for the glory of Jesus Christ. God's doing something in me that the world's yet to see. And he is in you too. As I close, there's so many things that we have to have time and energy to do. I get it. One of those things, though, is the foundation of them all, and that's living for Christ. It's also handing our faith to the next generation. I mean, we, we have to. Every, every time in the history of the church, that Christianity has always been one generation away from its demise. And we're in a battle for that. In order for Christians to have time and energy to do anything other than survive, they have to start drawing some lines in their life. They have to start telling the enemy, no, you don't get to tell me what to do with my life. They have to start telling controllers and angry people, no, Jesus is Lord. We have to know this in us. 
Would you stand with me? Worship team, would you come on up? It's possible that some of this sermon scared some of you to death. It's possible that some of you are there going, I never could do anything other than what I'm doing right now. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to receive for a minute. And I want to get your heart in a position to receive from your Father. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's get in a position to receive, in our hearts anyway, however you want to do that. Let me pray for you. Father, we are the living sacrifices dedicated to Jesus Christ in this room. We are excited to be that. We are so glad that you've secured the promised land. We are so glad you have released us from the bondage of our own personal Egypt. And Lord, we are so glad that you sustain us in our own personal wilderness, whatever that may be. But Lord, we need courage. We need to be strong and courageous. Father, there is a promised land before us that we desire and long to take for your honor and glory. In this room is the heart that is afraid. Lord, would you fill it now with your love? Would you reveal your perfect love that pursues out of us fear? In this room is the heart that is angry. They've been hurt. They've been betrayed. Lord, would you fill that person with your love and your power and your patience and your self-control and your growth? Lord, all of us as a body, we have got to give our faith to our kids. Lord, would you raise up those hearts to fight the fight against the very fronts of hell that is attacking and trying to take away the minds and hearts of our children. Would you raise them up into this fray? Make time, make energy to love Jesus by loving his kids. Thanks, Lord. It's good. You're a good father. We don't have to beg. Oh, we should knock. Yes, we should. But you want to bless us. Let us receive your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Steve.